0: God, hear our prayers sang in that hymn this morning. Now, please, again, to your Bibles. Let's turn together in the Word of God back to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings in the chapter 18. Our text for this morning is again the words in verse number 21 Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? And the Lord be God, follow him. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord again for his grace and for his help. O oh, Lord God, our Father in heaven, we come before thee at this solemn hour. Dear Father, our hearts are open before thee. You know the heart of the preacher and the heart of the hearer. You know, dear Father, the troubles we face within our own souls, even those who are born of the Spirit of God, we wrestle against unbelief, we wrestle against principalities and powers, we face these spiritual foes of the world and the flesh and the devil. And so, oh God, we pray for the help that comes as the Word of God is applied to our souls, that we would find ourselves strengthened in the battle, that we, O Lord, would not succumb to these enemies and find ourselves losing out with thee. May the word of God strengthen and encourage our souls. And, dear Father, we pray today that for some, perhaps in this gathering, and your word has has them very much in your sight, we pray the word of God would strike home that your father would come with such power that would break, O oh God, the heart of the unbeliever, that they would reckon with their eternal state and run to Christ today. Hear us for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. One of the marks again of those who are out of Christ is their inability to see their actual need. Again, you have no difficulty across the world to find people who are out of Christ and they understand they have significant needs. But the needs that they perceive are ordinarily in the physical realm. They perceive their need for food and clothing and even for social interaction. But they are blind to their greatest need. I think we could say that and suppose that to be the case for the people of Israel here at this time. They understood and they perceived their need for rain. And yet what they really needed was a fresh sight of God and a revelation of the true God. See, the drought and the famine that they were experiencing were simply symptoms of a deeper problem. They weren't the final issue. The final issue was that their hearts had turned away from the Lord. You see, verse number 1 tells us that God has promised to send rain upon the earth. But the rain that will come will not come until the end of this chapter. And before the rain comes, there is something else that must occur. Verse number 37, as Elijah prays, he says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. The problem they face is that their hearts are turned away from God and that they have succumbed to the temptation to believe that the Lord God is not the only God. They've embraced the errors of their wicked king. He and his wife have promoted idolatry in the land. We understand that from chapter 16 and what has followed has been this three and a half years of drought. We saw last time that Ahab's heart remains unchanged, and yet incredibly, Ahab obeys Elijah's command and sends for the people and the prophets to gather together in Carmel. Verse number 20, so Ahab sent. Why did he send? Well, because God was working in Ahab's heart. Ahab, his heart is in God's hand. Again, please note again the words that are used Verse number 19, now therefore send. Verse 20, so Ahab sent. God is in control. And now, what we find in this chapter is that Elijah takes control of the events. The king is present. Verse 41, we know that Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up. He's there, he's observing the whole event. And yet he is a peripheral figure; he has no role to play in these events because he has no right to bring the people to God. God has got his prophet here, and God then comes as, or sorry, God then comes in and through his prophet Elijah and challenges the people (verse number 21): "How long halt ye between two opinions?" And the title of this morning's message is "The People Before Elijah." that's what we can see but ultimately they are a people before God they are confronted with the presence of God and we're going to see what God will do to make himself known in their experience and so the first thing to note though in this matter is we should see divine grace here there are overtures here of God's grace and God's favor You see, before we address the details of the question, there is an issue that arises in our minds around the significance of the word ye. You see that word there? How long halt ye between two opinions? You see, the attention on Mount Carmel is on the people. Who else is there? The prophets are there. They are also there, aren't they? Ahab is there, but they like they're 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 in God's hands, subject to God's overarching purpose. But what transpires here is for the people. Verse twenty, or sorry, verse uh, twenty-one again. And Elijah came unto all the people, all the people, that they would see. And have their hearts turned back to the Lord. God has not finally withdrawn from his people. He still has purposes and overtures of grace toward them. There are no such overtures offered to Ahab or the prophets. The people are shown an overture of God's grace. You see, in God's grace they are confronted with their sin. That is a mark of God's grace. To be guilty of sin and not to be confronted by that sin is a mark of God withdrawing and giving over his people or giving over the sinner. Now, that may not be absolute in the sense that God may allow someone to persist in a sin for a season and then may later deal with them David spent a number of months, likely a year, in his sin with Bathsheba before God came and said through Nathan, Thou art the man. But today, if you're living a life of sin and God is not bringing that sin to your attention, be very, very afraid. Fear God's silence. If you can be under the word of God, out of Christ, and that not impact your soul, that is a fearful state to be in. And if you're persisting in some secret sin, unknown to man, but known to God, and that sin is not troubling your consciousness, be very, very afraid. You see, when we come to see our sin, that's a mark of God's grace. And whilst it may break our hearts and we find ourselves weeping under the conviction of our sin, it is a good thing for us to know our true state and to be brought back to the realization that we need Christ Jesus. And so it is in grace that Elijah says to them, How long, Halt ye? It's also in God's grace that they are called to respond. Elijah comes to them and does not settle for the third person. I believe there are people who halt between two opinions. He says, ye, with, if you like, a point of the finger. He says, you people in front of me, you're the ones who are halting between two opinions. And he's not even coming before them and saying to them, might it be the case? He's saying, it's time for it to stop. How long is too long? Now is too long. It's about time you turned away from your halting between two opinions. Third-person preaching is easy to listen to, but it is not the pattern of the Word of God. Now, what do I mean by third-person preaching? Well, one of the very first sermons I preached in a Baptist church, in my home Baptist church, when I was a young man, I brought a message to our young people, and I used the word you regularly through the sermon. I think it may have been about the necessity to give their lives as a sacrifice unto God, and I used the word you. And A dear man, a man of God who is much older than me, came alongside and said, Stephen, you did a good job for your first time. I'm never quite sure what that means, but you did a good job for your first time, but you used the word you too often. It's much better to be more general, because you don't know the you's in front of you. But you know, when you see the Bible, God speaks directly through his word. Third person preaching is kind of this idea, well, there are some Christians who who don't give themselves to pray as they ought. Second person preaching is, you don't give yourself to prayer as much as you ought. Now, a preacher may do that in the general. And if, if that's not true for you, then let it go past you. But there are some in the congregation who may need such direct second-person preaching. And so please understand the distinction there. But preaching that is according to God's Word is not suggestive. It is directive. It's not a matter that generally people should be doing this thing generally, but rather it comes with power and authority. As the Word is preached, it's preached with the rebuke and with the exhortation. And so if I use the word you too often, well, I believe I have divine authority to do so. It is God who comes and says, how long halt ye between two opinions? And I say, please have the wisdom to understand and discern your own heart if the shoe fits wear it, if it doesn't pass it on to somebody else. But the word of God should come with this sense of divine authority. And when it does so, it does so as an act of God's grace. So that's just some comments regarding what I think we should see here, regarding this as being a, a mark of divine grace to the people. But secondly, we should see their culpable guilt. They are absolutely guilty here. And the people's attention are, are is drawn to their condition. And Elijah describes them as halting. Halting. See the word? How long halt ye between two opinions? Now, this is a description, please understand, it is a description of sinful compromise. That's what the word here means, a description of sinful compromise. This does not mean, as some may think, that they had stopped and were considering the two options before them of Baal or Jehovah. It's not the idea here. The word itself is, is, is intriguing in the original. It has at times the idea to hop or to leap from one place to another. It's used actually the angel of death in, in Egypt, going from house to house. It's also used significantly in verse number 26 of our passage, where the prophets of Baal are said to leap. Same word, this idea of halt. It has this, this idea at times of leaping. But in the, in the Hebrew language, the words in the verbal form come in different ways and they have different meanings. The likely sense here of halting between two opinions has something to do with the concept of faltering or limping. It's used regarding Mephilesheth in 2 Samuel 4 that he became lame. Halt. The condition here implies instability uncertainty, the thought of tottering between two positions, you you want a kind of a a visual uh, illustration of that, you think of the drunkard who's pulled out of his car by the police authorities and told to walk the line, and what do they do, they halt from one side to the other, they cannot keep a straight line, they're halting, they're stumbling, they're between two opinions, and they're limp and they're lame as they walk along that line, In other words, the people in view here are really spiritual drunkards and spiritual adulterers. They are, in James chapter 1's language, a double-minded man, is unstable in all his ways. And the instability here is seen in that they are halting between these two opinions. It's a dangerous and a tragic condition. Now, it's not that they're dithering. Again, sometimes you you go to the ice cream shop and you you see the strawberries, the chocolate, and you, you dither for a time between two opinions. That's not the view here. That's not the picture. Rather, it is of a people who are disabled in their condition, who are incapable of walking that straight line, but rather what they want, they want the best of both. If I can use one term, they are willful in their wavering. They are willful in their determination to have a little bit of Jehovah and a lot of Baal. And they halt between these two opinions, wanting the best of both worlds. Not so much that one minute they're following Jehovah and the other following Baal, but rather they want to exist between the two. It's a description of sinful compromise. But that description requires therefore some explanation. How do they get to this place where they're halting? Well, when we deal with this situation, there are a couple of things that must be true. Certainly it is true of the people here that they had received a revelation of Jehovah, the true God. Again, verse number 21 used the term, if the Lord be God. And the term there for Lord in capitals, it is the word Jehovah, the word for God, the great I am. Now, the previous 50 years or so, were years of darkness and departure from Jehovah. Yet only in Ahab's reign is Baalism a, is, is promoted. You look back to chapter 16, verse number 25. It says there, He walked in all the ways, this is Omri's description, He walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nazareth 16, uh, the son of Nebat, in all his sin, wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. with their vanities. And then you go down to what happens in terms of Ahab's reign. And Ahab, verse 30, The son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that before him, and it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took to wife Jezebel, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And not only that, he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and made a grove. And you see the prophets of the grove are also mentioned there in chapter 18. And so Ahab is the instigator of Baal worship. But prior to Ahab, there's this slipping into the clenching in the vanities of seeking to serve Jehovah, but doing so in ways that did not please Jehovah. Again, remember what happens uh, back in Jeroboam's reign? I go back to chapter twelve. Again, Jeroboam is mentioned in this section. Jeroboam's reign is chapter twelve of First Kings, verse number twenty-eight. And he takes Council and makes two calves of gold. Remember the division? He's concerned. Again, the northern kingdom, where where are they going to worship uh, God? They're not going to go, go, go to Jerusalem anymore. He takes the two calves of gold and says, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt." Again, what you see here, the word for gods in verse number 28 is the word Elohim that is used for God who is the creator in Genesis. And so there are many who suggest, I think this is right, that what Jeroboam is doing is not erecting false gods, but seeking to encourage the people to worship the true God in false ways. And so he's saying to them, Here is your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. He he asserts, this is the one that brought you out of Egypt. But they deny the true God in their false worship. But what all is that to say? Well, it's to say that all the way up to Ahab's reign, Jehovah was still known as the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. They still had a knowledge of God. And as Jehovah, he was known by that name. They knew him as Jehovah, the Great I Am. They knew him as the self-sufficient God. They knew him as the God of the Egyptian redemption. They knew him as the God who made covenant. They had a revelation of the true God. They had not fully cast off their past. They were not only given to Baalism. They still had a revelation of Jehovah. But secondly, they were a they were tempted by the attractiveness of Baal worship. Again, we saw in a previous study, Baal worship took on many forms. Note what it says in verse 18. Thou hast followed Baalim. Now, the I am ending in the Hebrew is the plural. Like we use the, word, the letter S, so they use the letters I am. And so what you're seeing here, thou hast followed Baals in their multiplicity. There are many different Baals. Beel as the sun god was worshipped under these two separate aspects. On the one hand, he was seen as being beneficent and the other hand was seen as being destructive. He gives light and warmth and you see him as a, a god of fertility. On the other hand, the fierce heat of summer destroyed vegetation and he was seen as a god of vengeance and they sacrificed humans to appease him or whatever god they wanted to choose. Now you might say, How could people who heard of Jehovah, how could they find idolatry attractive? Have you ever asked that? What is it about idolatry that makes it attractive? Well, of course, we're dealing with people whose hearts are unregenerate. The unregenerate heart will always turn away from truth and pursue a lie. But even leaving that aside, there are certain things that make idolatry attractive in this time. It was certainly encouraged by those in power. That should not be ignored. When authorities promote idolatry, that gives an attractiveness to the masses. This realism has Jezebel and Ahab's support. To stand for Jehovah brought you under risk of death. Therefore, Baal is promoted by those in authority. Now, this this is not an excuse. Elijah gives them no grounds to excuse their guilt. They're still responsible. How long will you halt between two opinions? He doesn't say to them, I know you are forced into it. There's no excuse for idolatry. But I'm simply giving you an explanation. When it's encouraged by those in power, it has a tempting allurement. It's also in this land, been practiced for many, many years. Idolatry has the appeal of antiquity. The people of the land, even back to Joshua's death in Judges chapter 2, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam back in Joshua's day. You know, people say, you know, false religion has the standing of being practiced for all of history. You've also got the fact that this false religion likely appealed to the flesh. Many of the cultic practices appealed to immorality as part of their worship and practice. In essence, you could follow Baal without denying self. You can have Baal as your God and still delight in your immorality. In fact, your immorality may be used to worship Baal. That's attractive. I hope you're seeing the parallels here without me spelling them out. There's also again the claim to be relevant. Baal was the God who bestowed upon man and the land fruitfulness. That was very relevant again to the farmer in Israel. Baal's a relevant God and hence it's likely the case that they halted and wanted the best of both. In their national tradition they they want to keep allegiance to Jehovah. But at the same time they rejoiced in the freedom of following Baal. How do we apply this? It's always the question, how do we bring this to bear upon our own present time? What is this halting? And do we see it today? Can we identify it today, at least in similar terminology? We're not walking in lands where we're promoting a, a false actual God, Baal, in this land, that's not the case. So, is this irrelevant to us today? Is it anything to say to your hearts? Well, we're, we're thinking of areas where false religion and idolatry are being held along with an attempt to worship the true God. A merging of the true and the false. Is it happening today? Well, clearly, the ecumenical movement is a claim to halting between two opinions. There is this desire, again those who are wed, technical a movement, that we can keep our allegiance to the doctrines of the gospel that they would hold to them and yet still have interfaith worship and worship between the true and the false. Ecumenism is a form of halting and should be shunned by any true believer. But even within the church, There can, again, insincere churches at times, a temptation towards halting. Now, I understand we're in the new covenant, and I understand that we have newborn hearts, and we, we walk in God's precepts. This is the sin of unbelief. This is the sin of those who do not know God. But surely, we still have remaining sin. And therefore, the sins that are in the unregenerate may be present in our own converted states as remaining sins. And therefore, we should not see this halting as only being true of those who do not know the Lord. It may be present in the form of remaining sin in those who do know the Lord. And so what can happen? Well, in the church, there can be a temptation to pander to Baal worship in the house of God. Uh, Remember the term or the question used when I was a teenager. The question was asked, why does the devil have all the best music? That question was asked because young people, they they delighted in the devil's music. They delighted in the the beats and the tones and the words and all the the things that are being practiced in the the music of this world. And what has happened? Well, the church embraced that Baal worship and sought to bring it into the house of God, adapting or approach Adapting our hymns, adapting things in such a way that, well, we, we don't make the church seem so different from the world. But, but let's acknowledge that there are things in the world that are not, well, they're not simple per se. It's not simple to play a note in this term or that term or this instrument or that instrument. But what you see, and again, those who know the world, they will, they will watch a modern worship service in some churches and they say, that looks just like the concert I attended last night. There is this overlapping of ideas and it may, well be, it may well be a halting between two opinions. But of course, beyond the general, we think of our own lives and we live in constant threat of spiritual idolatry, of the things of this world, wanting to acknowledge Jesus as the Lord and God and Savior, and yet still at the same time wanting to enjoy the things of this world. Now, there are things that may be outwardly legitimate. It is right to work and to labor and to seek to earn. Yet again, these things can become a bale in our lives. In essence, idolatry is worshiping anything and everything that is not the true and living God, giving to man what belongs to God alone. And in this day, we have the cult of celebrity, Sports people, the music industry, we again have the addictions of technology and gadgets, career, money, fame, fashion, all of these things come under the compassing of bealism, And the church struggles with such. Turn across, please, to First John chapter 2. You see, what we need to reaffirm as a church today is that when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God and Savior, that claim dominates our entire lives. We must shun the temptation to compartmentalize our lives, that we do the things of the gospel in church and in our devotions in the morning or the evening or whenever. But the rest of our lives, Christ has no impact upon it. That is the devil's lie that pushes us towards Bealism and halt in between two opinions. Whatever we do in this world, whatever we do in this world must be done as those who follow Christ Jesus: our work, our leisure. All of those things come under the Lordship of Christ Jesus, and we cannot cut anything away from our allegiance to Christ Jesus. But in 1 John chapter 2, we see John's assertion of this absolute that you cannot halt between two opinions, that that's not permissible. And so you get 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither things are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, we find ourselves, well, what, what is the world? Well, he tells us, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And as Christ says, no man can serve two masters. You cannot halt between two opinions. Halting between two opinions denies the truth of God. And so you say, well, God is true, but I can have God and the world. God says, you can't have me and the world. I demand everything. And so what does the world have? Well, these line, these terms of verse 16, they denote immorality, covetousness, and ambition for prominence and position. The world never changes. We live in this day and age, and the worldliness around us is marked by immorality, consciousness, and ambition for prominence and position, and the acceptance of this world. Now, this is a dangerous time in the evangelical world. I don't want to overplay this, but I think it's sincere and genuine. In the last 20 years or so, there's been an increasing movement that has asserted that grace is such that we must fear legalism and Phariseeism in such a way that we cannot demand particular matters of obedience to the children of God. Now, should we fear legalism? Absolutely. We should fear the legalism that says you've got to work in such a way to earn the favor of God. We should fear that because that's not the gospel. And we run from that. But that legalism is not consistent with the gospel. But what those who are promoting a grace mentality are saying is legalism is whenever anybody tells you don't do something. That's legalism. That's Phariseeism. And so you, you get that coming into the church. And if, if we happen to mention to people in the pulpit, you shouldn't dress that way. That particular outfit is not modest. Young men, that particular T-shirt is promoting an ungodly way of lifestyle. And we mention those things, the cry comes up from the grace movement that's legalism. Or we say to people, you should not watch that, or you should not listen to that, or you should not consume this or consume that. You should not spend money on this or that. And you begin to be directive and prescriptive. You're then accused of being guilty of legalism. What are we to do? How do we deal with these issues? Is there a danger that we may tell people you've got to do these things to please God and if you violate these things, you're not saved? Is that a danger? Yeah, it's a real danger. But surely it's vital for parents and for pastors to tell people what I see in you looks a lot like bealism. and you're halted between two opinions. You want the church, you want to say you follow Christ, but you want these other things as well. And you're halting between two opinions. And it's a dangerous place to be. Oh, there's so much more in terms of expanding that thought, but a church the church that we live amongst and in, the church marked increasingly by immodesty, materialism, and desire for the praise of men is not of God, but it's halting. Sin and this world is so very, very appealing. So on the Lord's day, this day brings it all to bear. Because here you come and you worship God. But you know your heart's not really here. Your delight's not here. What you really delight in is out there. What makes you happiest is not in here, it's out there. Is that not a fearful thing to admit That's one of the times I've said you. If that's not you, fine. But it may be you. And it may be the fact that the things that cause you the greatest contempt and delight, the things you spend your money, your attention, your energies on are things of this world and not the things of God. Take these things seriously. Their guilt is culpable, inexcusable. But finally... Elijah leaves them with logical guidance. Elijah clearly has no time for such halting. He says, how long? In other words, he says, when will this ever stop? Note the words. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, Elijah is not suggesting there's a choice to make here. He's emphasizing that true religion is exclusive. That there is only one true God. And whoever the true God is, follow him. Now, of course, we know what Elijah knows. He knows that Jehovah alone is the one true and living God. But he's bringing the people to realize that they cannot have the best of both worlds. They they cannot embrace these two things together. You can't have God in the world. You can have Jehovah and Beel. You see, what's he saying here? If the Lord be God. Now, the word God there is the word Elohim that we saw earlier on in the beginning. Elohim, God has revealed Himself to the people of God as Jehovah. The Lord is God. Moses at the bush. Elohim the name of the supreme, infinite, creator, all-powerful God. There's only one supreme God, only one creator God. There can only be one creator God who is supreme and above all things. There cannot be two creators. Only one true and living God. We must again shun the idea that all religions contain some aspect of truth. Christianity is not just one of a number of options. It's not like you you, you call some telephone service and press one for this and two for this and three for this uh, and they'll all get you somewhere eventually. No, there is only one option when it comes to true religion. There's only one true and living God. The God of Islam and the God of the Bible are not the same. The modern liberal notion of God and the Bible, not the same. Pink says this, the God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of Holy Writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the sun. There's only one true God. You know, young people, you've got to realize this. If you come to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to offend the majority of this world. You've got to embrace that, or else you're going to halt between two opinions. The majority of this world do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you believe that and live according to that, you're going to offend many, many people. Isn't that what Joshua told the people? Choose you this day whom you will serve. He doesn't tell them they can make the equal choice. But rather, if they choose to follow the false gods, they can choose between those gods but there is only one true and living God, so as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. True religion is exclusive. It's also demanding. It's demanding. Nobody says, follow him. Now, when I say true religion is demanding, I'm not suggesting that true religion demands works whereby we earn God's favor, but rather the truth of God's impacts everything. True knowledge governs everything, changes everything. You cannot know the truth and that not impact your life. Theology has consequences. If you come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is the one true God, then that's going to change everything. You're going to follow him. Doesn't it sound familiar? The God of the Old Testament walked on this earth. Challenged the disciples with the same call to forsake all and follow him. You turn across in closing to Luke chapter 9. Over in Luke chapter 9, we find the incarnate God, the Son of God, walking in this earth, and really echoing the words of Elijah. He comes as the one way, the one truth, and the one life. And he comes before his disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse number 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or verse number 59. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But then, verse 62, no man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God." There are demands when you come to know Jesus as the one true and living God and the only Savior of sinners. The demand comes to forsake all and to follow Christ, to give up on sin in this world and follow Christ in wholehearted obedience, no matter what it may cost. You see, to follow Christ is to be a Christian. To halt between two opinions is to be lost. And whilst in our converted state we may find ourselves struggling with the remaining sin, to halt between two opinions in the final analysis, those who know Christ, hear his voice and follow him. They're his sheep and they shall never perish. The Puritan used to speak of the whole Christ to the whole man. Prophet, priest and king. And if we will not give up our idolatry to this world, then we are not Christ's sheep. Halting between two opinions will take us to a lost eternity. Following Christ is the way of peace and righteousness. May God be pleased to use His Word in our hearts today to pray for your soul, to pray for your children, to pray for the church that we'd see Jehovah to be one true and living God. Let's all pray. Oh, eternal God, we look to Thee again. We, we see the weight of Your Word. We know, God, that we're not standing upon Mount Carmel like the people were doing in Elijah's day, but we, we find ourselves in a time and an age when this world is so alluring. We're confronted with this world continually O oh Lord in, in every form of media and the temptation is to have a little bit of Christ and a lot of this world help us O oh Lord to deal with our hearts that every aspect of our lives in our labor in our leisure in everything every aspect of God will be done under the lordship of Christ Jesus that we forsake all And follow him. Bless this gathering, this congregation. May we all know your guidance and your direction in our lives. Help us to walk humbly with thee in Jesus' precious name. Amen.